Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello there, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have the return of Nadia Bowles-Weber talking about her new book, Shameless. And uh, we're going to just jump right in. One of the uh, things that you're going to notice is that uh, this is actually the second time we recorded the podcast about the book Shameless with me and Nadia, and we're going to tell you all about that in just a second. Uh, but if you don't know Nadia, she actually grew up in the Churches of Christ, like myself, and uh, then went over to the old Lutheran Church. And uh, so this is a book that uh, talks about some uh, adult content. So if you're listening with the children in the car, uh, I don't know if this is maybe the ideal one. It's just there's just a lot of stuff to talk about, but uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. This one will be a an episode that we're gonna definitely talk about on the wrap up with me and Jonathan, because uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff that uh, Nadia was gracious enough to have this conversation about, and I really I hope you appreciate the fact that she cares enough about this subject matter and what she's doing in her voice uh, to want to record this a second time. I think that speaks to some good character. And anyway, here we go. We're now recording. Um, hey, Nadia. Hey. Welcome back. Thanks. So we, we had to bring you back because um, I guess two options. One, you just missed me so much. Yeah. And you wanted, is that what I want? We don't even need a second. <laughs> That's the only option. Yeah. Yeah. So well, what's, been, what's actu- been going on? Actually, when did we talk? Like last week or two weeks ago? It, it seems like just yesterday. Yeah, it was um, not that long ago. And yeah. then I woke up at 2.30 in the morning that night or uh, the next morning and was like, I have to ask for a do-over because I was, I was so defensive and like over-caffeinated and I just didn't, I was not like a great version of myself. <laughs> so you very graciously said I could have a do-over. So thank you. Of course. You. Do you th- did I, do you think I made you feel like you needed to be defensive? Not at all. It had nothing to do with you. I think this is literally, I think your podcast is the only, might be the only Christian media I'm doing for this book. Like I'm like not interested in being in Christian media and now there are stories that have run or, you know, people have written reviews or articles or excerpts, but in terms of like an, a long form interview this is it. And so, um, okay. So two things. One, wh- why no, like, I'm sure you have requests to do other Christian podcasts. Why, oh, yeah. like, why are you, why, why do you say yes to me and no to them? Well, because we had talked before and I guess I just still have an affinity for folks who are still in the church of Christ and maybe kind of pushing things in a different direction than in the Church of Christ I was raised in, and so, um, okay. yeah, I think that's or, probably why. Or podcasters with good hair, one of the two. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> but so then, why are you saying like, why don't you want to have the conversation with with the uh, other Christian? Well, podcast. Because I guess I'm not. I'm sort of uninterested in feeling like I have to defend what I'm saying in the book, and I just. I think it's hard for, I think the reason I was defensive was, I think it's very difficult for me in a pastoral way to be in conversation with anyone who I feel like is still perpetuating teachings that have hurt people I love or that represents Uh, institutions that are still doing that. Um, Just like as a pastor, it's like, it just aches 
um, knowing the impact those teachings have on so many people I've pastored over the years that it's difficult for me to like pretend like, no, it's okay. You believe that I believe this. It's all good because I see, I see the negative impact in people's lives on a daily basis. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that okay. that's why, I mean, that- same, same with the sort of women, women in leadership thing. Um, like it's very, it's, that's a very difficult. Um, Wait, you still get the, oh, you can't be a woman pastor stuff. People are still having that oh, conversation. I oh, guess? daily. Yeah. Oh mm. yeah. Online constantly. Mm. People are like, you're not a real pastor. You all of that. So even just traditions, I mean, I'll see, hmm. I'll see I, pictures yeah. of, you know, even just family members who I love dearly, but they'll put a picture of their, their, young son who's getting to read scripture at, at their church of Christ on Sunday. And isn't it, look at, we're so proud of him. And I'm like, of course you're proud of him. But like my heart just aches for every single little girl who like me sat in a pew three times a week for year after year after year and never saw a girl get to be proud of doing that. And like the impact on the psyche Um, like maybe for some people that, you know, obviously there are people for whom that kind of, um, spiritual community still really works and maybe it doesn't have a negative impact on everyone, but, um, you know, I think it does impact people. If you can't, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And to just be told your whole life that like God is male and you're not, but Joey is, and that's why he gets to be proud of reading scripture in church, and you never do. Like that yeah. sort of connection to the divine and this really sort of almost DNA level um, is like brutally important to our the development of our psyches, I think. Yeah, it's the same conversation I had with my friend Fate, who's a big superhero guy, mm-hmm. and he talked about how Black Panther was a movie that was really formative for him and many other people in the uh, African-American community to go, yeah. that, that's, that's someone we can celebrate. That's, that's like us. And it's the same exactly. thing when it's, um, it's just, just dudes up there. Um, yeah. Okay, I, we'll talk about the teaching in a second. Um, oh, I had something. I just forgot what it was going to be. Um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So when you emailed and said, hey, let's do this again, uh-huh. I personally was very excited. And I've never done this. I've literally never done this before. And I was excited because after that conversation, I was like, I, I don't feel like I, I felt like we left things on the table. I don't feel like I was on my A game. I, mm. I was walking around uh, Kroger getting, or HEB, excuse me. I live in Texas. Uh, HEB going, like afterwards going, uh, like I, I, that wasn't the best conversation I huh. could have created for us. And oh, interesting. I, huh. I didn't notice until afterwards yeah. that when you just said uh, pastorally, uh, how you could respond to people who are teaching things that are destructive to your yeah. people. It, it, okay, tell me if I'm overstepping, but it kind of clicked to me. After the conversation, I was processing going, Nadia is an eight. Loyalty mm-hmm. and taking care of her people is like the divine image in the eight. And yeah, yeah. maybe your pastoral thing is, I want to protect my people that I love and I care about, and I've got to defend them. It's not that I, I, I want to like dominate like a typical eight over everyone it's that i want to protect my people which is eight in their health right totally. is this kind of oh, you see that? Is that fair? oh 100%, 100%. Okay. it like it, it's like painful to not do that it, it's just my 
my instinct, you know, and, um, and I, and, and I think it's also sort of realizing, okay, that's my lane, you know, like my friend Suzanne Stabile talks about what's mine to do, what's not mine to do, what's mm-hmm. mine to care about, what's not mine to care about. And so, you know, being, being, having this pastoral vocation to those who are more on the margins or who've been hurt by church or who have a hard time, who love Jesus, but have a hard time even calling themselves Christian or queer folks who, who have been hurt by the church and want to be able to dip their toe back in a safe way and all of that, like, that's my calling. And so, um, it, I think, you know, I'm, I'm hard pressed to do. I mean, I, I met, so I met Glenn back at, um, at this, we spoke at the same event and, mm-hmm. um, and when I got off stage, he gave me a hug and he's like, would you come on my show and say all those things? And like, I really wanted to not like him yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I did like him. And, and actually I, you know, I ended up eating fried clams with him and his <laughs> wife and, um, and my boyfriend. And he, like, when I walked in the room, he goes, we just want to know how we can serve you. And I was like, Oh my God, what is happening right now? Who I'm are tr- you? I need to not like you. You know? you, you and, tell the same story in, in one of your books about uh, like a similar person, on the other side of the spectrum, Theologically, like you become good friends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, but here's the point is that, you know, we, um, he's a person that has nuances and has a backstory and has more to him than people realize. And, um, and yet, and he, he's asked me to come on his show and I've struggled with it because I'm like, would that feel like a betrayal to the people who are willing to listen to me right now as a pastor and a theologian who are on the margins and who have been really hurt by a lot of the rhetoric that is maybe common on, on his show, you know? So, and so it's because not you're being even complicit? him as a person. It's like yeah. him as this figure. And it's this thing I've been thinking about a lot because as a public person is that, we're just stand-ins for what people need for us to be. You know, I mean, people, people, both my fans and my detractors are passionate, passionate groups of people who I describe as being equally distant from the truth. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I'm, I'm just a stand-in for what they need me to be. And, and seldom do they understand the nuances of my heart or my story or anything like that. And so I can get caught up in being this sort of figurehead to people, either as this horrible, demonic person who's sending people to hell or this sort of, you know, the, our great hope as a preacher who's going to save Christianity or whatever, right? Neither yeah. of those things are true. And neither of them allow for the sort of subtlety of my experience. Anyway. Yeah. When, when you were concerned about going on uh, Glenn Beck's show, whatever that, I, I guess TV or whatever it is, uh, sadly, I don't even know what he does right now, but I believe you that he has something. Would it be that your presence would be some sort of, com- like, uh, you would be complicit with what the normal rhetoric is on that show? Is that how it would come across? Would, um, yeah, I think so. Or, like, an endorsement. Or I think, I think it's a time when everything is so heated ideologically right now that I think that 
there are things that are seen as treasonous when okay. when um, it's not what was intended. And so, um, yeah, I just I, I I would hate. There might be some good that would come from he and I having an open conversation and seeing each other as nuanced people. Um, and yet I wonder what the balance would be with the harm that might come from people who are like literally maybe for the first time considering Christianity again because of my work. And then they're like, she's on Glenn Beck. Oh my God. She's just like everyone else. So I, I don't know. I struggle with, with that. I, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Cause people's mm-hmm. first, first perspective of someone who's on said program, whatever it is, mm-hmm. would be like kind of the, the vax populi, like the, like the general stuff that people are typically hearing from that. I, like right. I get it. I, I also get, I get, this would be hard to imagine, but I get criticism for some of the guests that are on my podcast every once of in a while. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not saying you're going to cause the same thing to happen. <laughs> but, uh, no, of course not. <laughs> but, but my, like I've always thought, first of all, it's a podcast. I'm supposed to just talk to people and learn ideas right. and, and figure right. out where they're coming from. And so I, I've never had that, like, again, I'm a seven, so I'm just thinking about myself and my own experience. I'm not mm. maybe being thoughtful of other people. But I, I always feel like it's a conversation. You learn from people. You, yeah. you get to in, engage. And like you're talking about, moving away from the sort of caricatures that we have kind of projected upon to an actual human being, but instead mm. learning the subtleties of what makes them who they are and going forward. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the subtleties. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot we can discuss, mm-hmm. and I, we did a good book report last time. I feel like we, we covered all the high stuff. <laughs> Here's the, here, when I left the conversation, there were a few things that I wanted. I was like, I, I, I honestly wanted to just call you and say, help me understand this perspective more, because I, I don't fully get it, and I feel like you're probably smarter than me, and so I'd like to hear like exactly how you describe this. Mm-hmm. And so um, purity culture. Yeah. Obviously you've, you've done a little bit of work with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been burning some, uh, some rings, turning them into, uh, items that yeah. are not <laughs> rings. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I grew up church of Christ, just like you. Mm-hmm. I, I never felt like I was in the throes of purity culture. My, mm-hmm. my church never had like put on this ring and promise God that you're going to be a virgin until you get married. The, sure. the teaching is there, like abstinence outside of marriage, but mm-hmm. some of the stuff that I've heard since then, and obviously our mutual friend Richard Beck has mm-hmm. written on purity culture a good bit. Mm-hmm. Give me the 30 second, like this is what purity culture is, and then we'll go from there in the conversation. Well, <clears throat> I mean, it really did. I mean, Joshua Harris wrote that book, you know, I kissed yeah. dating goodbye. And there was this whole movement, true love waits to try to ensure that, um, young people did not have, uh, sex before marriage outside of marriage at all. And, um, I, if I, if I can access the compassionate part of myself, which <laughs> I don't do regularly, but I attempt to occasionally, I can look at the fact that, um, this sort of happened as a result of the AIDS crisis. And I think that there were all of these parents who were like, sex is killing people. How do we keep our children safe? Right. And so I think that that's an understandable instinct, but the reason that purity systems are dangerous is that 
a lot of them are originated because we want to lead holy lives. We, um, you know, we desire holiness in some way. Um, and so, but what we do is we set up purity systems thinking that purity and holiness are interchangeable, but they're not because purity is always about separation from purity systems deliver our drug of choice, which is knowing who we're better than it's self-righteousness in some way. And so um, purity is about separating ourselves from other people, separating ourselves from our own desires, from our bodies, from society, whatever. And holiness to me is always about connection to holiness is about connection to God being deeply connected to our bodies, to another person, to nature, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. If you ask people to describe their experiences of holiness, they will almost always describe some kind of deep connection. Mm -hmm. And so purity is about separation from and holiness is about connection to. And we pretend they're interchangeable because purity is just easier to regulate than holiness. Um, and so we set up these systems so that we can know we're good and know who we're better than, but there's, um, there's always a cost. And, um, in the interviews I did for the book, um, just so many people talked about, um, youth group and, and how, you know, their youth leader just hammered away at this thing of like, you, you know, it's sinful to even think uh, sexual thoughts that you have to mm-hmm. be really aware of any desires. Those desires are bad and that there's only one context under which that's allowed. And if you're not in it, then you have to guard your heart and guard yourself and guard your body. And, and, you know, girls, boys are going to want to have sex more than you. And once boys get aroused to a certain point, they can't help themselves. So it's your job to make sure that you don't wear clothes that are going to be arousing to them that you don't go to movies where you know you that will lead you to think sexual thoughts and it's like (laughs) there's a way in which that message that is doled out so frequently in christian youth group settings it really sets up what people are now calling rape culture where um it's a culture in which girls are told you're body is not really your own. It's your sexuality doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your dad. Who's going to put a ring on your finger. And then it belongs to the church. Who's going to make sure you make this promise until it finally belongs to your husband. And, um, and it sets up a situation where there's not the accountability that young men have when it's put onto women, um, the sexual impulses. And then the other thing that's never really addressed is like that women actually are sexual beings ourselves. We, we have our own desires and, and, um, but that somehow in that system is never addressed. It's just this thing that you broker that boys want that you have to be sure and not give them until they put a ring on your finger that replaces the one your dad put on it when you were 11. Yeah. So I, I I was going to ask you the question if you didn't go there about purity culture and rape culture's connection. Mm -hmm. And there was a, uh, a tweet that I saw the other day where someone was saying, uh, men, if the, the woman you're with isn't, uh, the one you're going to marry, keep your hands off of someone else's future. Oh my gosh. And I was like, Oh my God, you see it right there. 
Yeah, I, 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 it seems like it, it is pretty dismissive of the image of God in both genders. Yes, that it's, right. A, a woman exists simply for the sake of a man's pleasure, exactly. a, a man's future pleasure, future right. whatever. That, right. And it, yeah, obviously it's very dismissive and very dysfunctional. Right, uh, right. Yeah, it's, it's pernicious. And, um, and it's just hurt so many people. And, and the reason it's hurt them is because they want to be good. Like we have this desire to be good and to be holy. And then, you know, you have a charismatic youth group leader who tells you exactly how to do that. And you follow along and you don't notice what it costs you. Um, until sometimes it's too late. And like in the interviews I did, I had people tell me, look, we waited. We did everything the church, the church promised us if we waited and we didn't have sex till we were married, that we would have much better sex than all the people who squandered it. You know, those little youth group things where you have a rose and each of the boy oh. takes, a pe- takes a petal off the rose and then that withered stem is what's left. And that's like the girl's virtue. Or they have a glass of water and each person spits in it. And then the last person is like asked, do you want to drink this now that everyone else has spit? I mean, these are very common scare tactics that are done in youth group settings. Um, and so people told me we did everything we could and avoided sex until we were married, but we couldn't flip a switch on the day of our wedding and go from relating to sex as dirty and sinful and dangerous to suddenly relating to it as joyful and God-given and beautiful. And, um, and all of the struggles that happened in their marriage because of this. And so yeah, I and guess I've... my thing is like... Look, we just have to pay attention to the harm that these teachings do in people's lives. And like, if the teachings of the church are harming people, the church should rethink those teachings. I've heard stories that coincide exactly what you're saying of people who've been uh, given like the scare tactic of how bad sex is. And then all of a sudden when it's supposed to be good, you, you can't dismiss what has been ingrained in you for all your formative years. Like, yeah. And you're trying conti- to, con- you're trying to connect frayed wires suddenly because yeah. your church told you do not like, basically you shouldn't even think sexual thoughts, like shut down this whole part of you that the Lord developed and gave yeah. you to start yeah. connecting to in a certain way at a certain time in your life. But then the church is like, but if you love God, <laughs> now it's one yeah. thing when people were, when we didn't have um, reliable contraception, when um, people were getting married right after puberty, um, that was a, that ethic had a different impact on people's lives when that was the situation. But you know, people aren't getting married till 40 and you're like, no, you're, you're not allowed to be a sexual being. There's an, imp- there, there can be a negative impact to that in people's lives and mm-hmm. just really sort of shut down in certain ways. And then it's hard to recapture that later in life. Hmm. So I've, I'm still in the camp that says, I think sex outside of marriage is not ideal. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there's a way do you think the whole teaching of keeping sex in marriage, the whole thing creates the same sort of uh, purity culture and obviously the even rape culture? Even if you move away from the dysfunctional teaching of, you know, the, the rose metaphor, the spitting in the cup, or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sex is a bad thing. Do you think just saying you need to, with, 
abstain from this until marriage creates the same sort of frayed wires? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it was one thing to teach when people were getting married at 14, 15 years old. Yeah. Um, but it's another thing to, to, to tell people. Also, I mean, to me, uh, it, like, what does that say about marriage that we have to, um, that people are going to be rushed into this institution because of their desire to be sexual people. That's a thing that happens. And in a, in a weird way to me, really, I didn't know that. Tell yeah, me about this. Yeah. Tell yeah. me how, about this. How old What's, were you, Luke? <laughs> uh, tw- 21, 21. Um, yeah. 21. So, um, <laughs> but, but to me, that can even cheapen the institution of marriage to be to have people rush into it, you know, in that way when they don't know themselves well enough or their partner well enough yet to know who they are, what they want, or who's the best person for them to be with. Now, I know there's situations where it works out perfectly fine. People get married when they're 20 and they have great marriages and they, until death, do them part. Do do them part. I don't. I don't begrudge that, but there's so many different varieties of human beings out there that to have this one sort of ethic around this, um, isn't that helpful? I mean, I'm, you know, I have a boyfriend, we've been together two and a half years. We're deeply committed to each other. We're monogamous. We're really in love and take very good care of each other. And we're definitely in a sexual relationship and we're not going to get married for very personal reasons. I mean, maybe way out in the future, but, um, you know, we have other factors to contend with in terms of his kids, my kids, you know, all of that stuff that we're like, it's not the right thing for us. And Mm. so, um, if we, if we did it just to be in compliance with some rule, it wouldn't feel right because, um, you know, we have our own reasons for, for not rushing into that. So, um, I just think, yeah. yeah. How do you help people like determine this is the right thing for us? Because so the word I grew up in is there's one right option. And one of the things that I really love and value about your work is that you're saying, I-, I want God to be accessible, Jesus to be accessible to people who don't fit inside the cookie yeah. cutter. And that's a lot of people. And I, I really, and again, this is your, the divine image, your eightness coming through. I want to protect these people that I love. I know I pastor them. And so how do you help if the if the rubric that I'm using to make the decision of there's one right option, you do this, you wait, and you get married, and that's the mm-hmm. option. How do you help someone go? This is a godly way to perceive and decide. Is this the right thing? Is this the right move for us? How, how do we not uh, have this sort of uh, um, agnostic view towards the spirituality and the power within sexuality? Well, I it's interesting because you know, 10 years I pastored House for All Sinners and Saints, and not, and never did we say, here's what this church teaches about sex. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. here's, here's the box you have to fit in in order to be good with God and to be in good standing with this church. We never did that because we mm-hmm. had such a massive variety of people showing up at our door. There, it, it would be impossible to say, here's what you should be doing. But when the center of the church's teachings, what I realized, the center point, the point of gravity in the church's teachings was this doctrine of grace and not law. When, when we're justified by grace and not by works of the law, um, when the basic message is you are made in the image of God and that, um, and that 
your connection to your creator is a source of mercy and grace and reconciliation and healing, which means that your worst mistakes don't define you and that God can somehow um, bring live things out of dead things. Like when, when this is the central focal point and not here's a Christian lifestyle you have to adopt in order to be good. When the central focus is grace, what we realized is that people make good decisions about themselves and their lives without having the church tell them what those have to look like. So interestingly enough, we didn't, we, in a decade, I couldn't give you one example of somebody at our church acting out sexually with somebody else. Not once, not one time. And yet I defy you to show me a church with the same number of members where the focus was sexual purity and living a Christian lifestyle and this hard, heavy handed thing about here's what your life has to look like for you to be righteous and good with God. I would, I would venture to guess that there was more acting out sexually present in that community than in ours. And so this was my question with the Southern Baptist stuff is like, what's the correlation between two things? What, what kind of teachings do they have around sexuality in a church? And how does that correlate to um, sexual misconduct, the, the prevalence of sexual misconduct? And how does the role of women in a church correlate to the prevalence of sexual misconduct within a tradition? Now, of course, sexual misconduct happens in every denomination anecdotally. But I'm just curious as to... In these traditions where women are ordained and seen as full members of the body of Christ without limitation and given access to leadership and power at all levels, I think that you will see less of a rape culture in those churches. And I think in churches where the less repressive the teachings are around human sexuality, the less that people's sexuality comes out sideways because of the repression. I I think that would be a fascinating study. I would love to see it, because I I think there's a correlation that people uh, in the conservative world would have in that if you have a um, um, an LGBTQ welcoming, affirming congregation, Mm -hmm. that you would have an increase in predatory behavior, (laughs) pedophilia. (laughs) Well, I know, but I think it'd be great to have, (laughs) if you could see the research of going, the um, if you had an affirming church and then you had an egalitarian church and then you had a a you know non-affirming yep. and a uh, e- uh, well uh, complementarian church, yep. where would you have more? I think that's information. I wish some graduate student would go find that for us. Totally, I, we, we all need because, that because I think that that um, that it is human nature when something when you are told that something is forbidden and out of limits that you are more readily um, going to in secret reach for it. I, I mean, yep. there's been a million studies about that and that's in the Bible everywhere. You know? Yeah. And I would and agree we, with And yet we keep thinking, well, the, the way to keep people from acting out sexually is just give them more and more rules and guidelines. So they know what it means to be good. It just has never worked. Yeah. And I was going to affirm your, your statement about, um, uh, people not acting out sex or however, whatever language you want to yeah. use about, uh, outside of the bounds of what's appropriate in the community. Uh, mm. That has not been uh, 
my experience in my pastoral life of mm-hmm. uh, that not happening. So I, again, that's some sociologist needs to determine what the how yeah. that works. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to talk about uh, premarital sex. I think we've talked about that. I think uh, we've got it covered, solved once and for all. Uh, so thank you for that. Can we talk about another subject that's not a very fun one to talk about? Uh, can we talk about abortion now? Since it's oh in your wow, book? really? <laughs> I well, okay. Yeah. What I've um, I've never read the argument of a the Christians the Christian perspective on being uh, pro choice. Yeah. And the the argument that you make is that the uh, the breath of God that's when uh, someone has a soul and that's mm-hmm. early teaching and so that's the supporting um, belief. And I, I just never heard it. And I was mm. I, I'm curious. I want to hear more about that because uh, I've heard one perspective on that. I haven't heard the other. And so. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that's a fun conversation to have for probably no one, right? Like it's just awkward. <laughs> yeah. I know, but I want I, I like I I want to hear more about it from you. Well, I mean, I um, I think that that I mean that was the teaching that was accepted for a very long time until really the late I would say 1960s in terms of evangelical America. I mean, I, agreed, I quote agreed. I quote um, a professor from Dallas Theological Seminary, <laughs> pro Roe v. Wade in Christianity Today, who makes that argument. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I think it's always good to know, hey, where do these arguments come from to sort of map them and go, what are the origins of them? And how does that affect us in terms of if we still hold them or not? So, um, I think it's just important for people to know, hey, this thing that you've been told is, is, um, there, you know, here's the history of it. Now, you know, you can choose to keep believing that if you want, but, um, but it was very long held, you know, that, that life begins with, with breath that, that not, I mean, you can argue that there's life present, but the soul enters the body with the breath of God. That's how God endowed us with a human soul to begin with. And so, um, and even in Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones, in order for the bones to live, you, he had to prophesy to the breath. So um, I'm just saying that, you know, there are different ways that are rooted in this tradition to view this issue. And so um, that was yeah. important for me to put out there. And I know that people have very passionate, people of good faith have very passionate views about uh, both sides of this. But there are some sort of pragmatic things. I'm just a pragmatist when it comes to it. So I always think that the starting point for preachers and theologians should always be just actual reality. Like you start there with the lives and the hurts and the hopes and the joys and the fears of the people. And then you reach to tradition and to scripture uh, and to Christian thought and say, what is it within this lush bucket of resources that we have at our disposal that can speak life into this? Whereas some Christian traditions believe, no, the most important thing is the doctrine and you adhere to that and you ignore anything in actual reality that contradicts it. So for instance, like if women, if there are women in your midst who clearly have the gift of preaching, I mean, they are definitely can bring the word. You can either have that as the starting point and go clearly they're called, 
Or you can say, oh no, we have an interpretation of a couple of Bible verses, which means we can't, that's not what's actually in front of us in actual reality. These are two sort of philosophical differences. And so it, the pragmatist in me goes, you know, if if we outlawed abortion in this country and all of the women who needed to terminate pregnancies were forced to um, go through with them, uh, it would increase the birth rate in this country by 20%. That would be a devastating impact on our culture and on our society for suddenly for the birth rate to increase by 20%. And all of that 20%, 100% of it represents children that the mothers did not want to carry. Like just yeah. in the practicality. And I think it's just, it's difficult as a woman to hear the rhetoric, the pro-life rhetoric, when I never hear people include men in the conversation. Because for every unwanted pregnancy, there is a man who ejaculated inside a woman who didn't want to be pregnant. 100% of the time that's true. And nobody is trying to regulate that or to call men to account for that. And so it's difficult to hear um, all of the arguments and the rhetoric that people are trying to use as, quote, pro-life arguments when uh, they land on my ears as we really do not have a concern for women and their lives and their bodies and their futures. That's how it lands on my ears because mm -hmm. men are ne almost never involved in the, in the um, arguments. Yeah, no, that, uh, I've never thought of it that way, but I can't, uh, sounds about right. There was a, the argument you make about the 20% increase in birth rate. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you read the book uh, Freakonomics, but I yes. feel like in there, oh don't, they don't they reference something about yes. that? Yes, he does, because he says, look, there was a dramatic dramatic drop in violent crime in America in the 80s. And he was looking at it going, what would account for that? And his argument is that the dramatic decrease in violent crime in America could be tracked back to 18 to 20 years earlier when Roe v. Wade passed. When women who were not in a position of being able to raise their children or who, who were pregnant and did not want to be mothers were able to make the choice to not go through with their pregnancy in a legal and safe way, the, 18 years later, the crime rate dropped because we don't have people who are running around with attachment disorder and having been poorly parented or you know, whatever. I mean, the, the impact of people being raised by people who don't want to have them affects our whole society. So, yeah, that, I remember reading that and just going, wow, that is an angle that I've literally never looked down. It's, uh, yeah, I, it's an interesting argument. The, uh, in the book, you talk about how the religious right and the uh, political quest for power altered how the evangelical church looked at abortion. Obviously, you referenced some of that with the Christian Today piece, mm -hmm. uh, but that's also fascinating information that people need to be aware of the yeah. actual historicity of how that came into right. the religious rights conversation. And, and you do a good job documenting that in your book. Other books like, um, uh, what is it? Stephen Prothrow wrote a book, we talked about it on uh, a few week, few years ago, but he talked mm -hmm. about this similar thing. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's very compelling, and I think sometimes we, uh, uh, we forget that the church has a vastly different opinion on this now than they did just a couple decades ago. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just interesting to know the history and that, um, 
you know, I was raised in the in the Church of Christ in Colorado Springs, but um, you know, that's before focus in the family was there. It's before the advent of the quote moral majority or the religious right. That really happened later. And mm-hmm. it didn't happen as a result. The, the the religious right did not become a power in this country as a result of their um rage against Roe v. Wade, which is sort of the narrative that a lot of people yep. have, but it actually was first garnered as a, as, a, as a source of power politically in America to defend Bob Jones University's um, racist admission policies. So they were considering it an issue of, quote, religious freedom that Bob Jones University could continue to ban African-American students uh, from their student body. So um, that was the first time that we see conservative evangelicals as a political force in this country. And they realized, hey, we could really make hay with this. And a lot of the leaders after this were on a call saying, hey, how do we keep going? And somebody on the conference call, they were like, what, what's the next issue we could garner support for? And somebody on the conference call literally said, how about abortion? Yep. So, um, you know, it was, it was manufactured, but the history of it really, it has to do with, with uh, white supremacy. So. Yeah, they're, they're quotes from uh, Ed Dobson, who was one of the um, yeah. uh, one of the leaders, and so he's he's actually been on record saying that very thing before he passed a few years ago. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, I think one of the first times I talked to you, you said, you know, I'm just a simple long grace, long gospel. What's yeah. your phrase? Long, long gospel. gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Church of Christ. I don't know what that means, but I'm just <laughs> a simple long gospel preacher. Um, Premarital sex, we've been talking about that. Uh, mm-hmm. Abortion. I feel like like this book, you're kind of branching out, like you're getting some more stuff involved that mm-hmm. uh, that we just get this a little bit more sassy. So why don't we go ahead and add one more? And Because um, on the internet, I read that Nadia is a big fan of pornography now. And, <laughs> oh, my uh, God. <laughs> this. Yeah, this has been, this, this has been <laughs> so interesting on my end because, um, you know, this term fake news has been kind of thrown around. And... I didn't know exactly what it meant until I was on, I was the subject of a fake news story myself. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it happen and I went, oh my gosh, this is a thing. And so it was that I had an interview. I talked for an hour on the phone with a writer from a gay magazine in New Jersey. Now, again, if I'm talking to someone from a gay magazine in New Jersey, my ultimate concern is I want them to have a pastoral voice from a Christian tradition that is very different than the ones that have hurt the population that are going to be reading the magazine. I want them to know not all Christians are shaming of who they are and actually think they're glorious. And what are the things, what are the shaming messages that they've received from the church? So that's going to be my primary purpose in that interview. And so, um, the consumption of pornography has been something that um, has been a source of shame for so many people. And as a pastor, I am much more concerned about the shame and the effects of the shame on people than I am about the behavior itself. Because what I found in my pastoral ministry is that when people have a lot of shame about a behavior, when the shame decreases, the compulsivity around the behavior also decreases. The shame about it is what fuels the compulsive behavior around it. So anyway, that's just pastorally my concern. And I said in the interview that um, 
just like everything else in the world, pornography and erotica is not only one thing. There are all these different forms of it and that people have found that there are uh, forms of pornography that are produced in a more ethical manner than others that are not degrading and exploitative. Um, and so that was part of the conversation, right? So um, then what happened was then these conservative media outlets um, took a pull quote from this conversation I had with this man for an hour, and they wrote conservative clickbait headlines about, you know, feminist past quote pastor says <laughs> pornography is ethical and I'm like oh my gosh like amazing right not what I said I was trying to present a nuanced argument I was trying to have a different kind of voice that's pastoral to people and um and I knew what I wrote in the book and it was a nuanced argument right it's not saying I think pornography is great it's saying like like we've created erotic images since we could scratch them inside caves. And like the fact that your body has a response to it is an empathic response. It's not like something's wrong with you. Right. Mm -hmm. But that it's what we didn't have. And I, and I relate it to like sweets, like people have eaten sweets from the dawn of time, but it was honey and dried fruit. Right. So there's nothing wrong with the fact that our bodies crave sweets and that they're delicious and pleasurable to eat. The difference with these things is that what we didn't have before was 24 hour streaming Pornhub and high fructose corn syrup in every single thing we eat. And so, uh, our, our bodies and our brains probably are not developed for that intensity of ubiquitously available and condensed in form. Like how can you appreciate the sweetness of an apple if you just drank 48 ounces of Mountain Dew, right? Mm -hmm. Like how can you appreciate the beauty of your middle-aged spouse's body if you just streamed all, you know, all these hours of porn from actors or whatever. Anyway, so they wrote these headlines and it was clickbait for conservatives. And it, what it made me reflect on is how many times have I clicked on liberal outrage clickbait? Like how many times have I looked at a headline and immediately it stoked my liberal outrage and I clicked on it and I was like, how dare they? That's awful. And how many times was the thing that was being, the story that was being told actually accurate? Mm -hmm. How many times was it true? And so um, it was just interesting. So I had lots of people outraged um, because uh, I think... I supposedly think pornography is ethical. <laughs> and so I didn't, I didn't engage cause it just felt kind of beneath my dignity to, to do it. But, um, but because I knew my argument in the book and if you're going to read that whole chapter and disagree with my conclusions, I have no problem with that. But what I'm not going to do is defend myself against a fake news story that was really, um, very carefully crafted to stoke conservative outrage. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one silver lining from this is I feel like you and Donald Trump have uh, some common ground. I feel like you guys are probably going to be closer friends because of that. And that's and that's a win for all of us. Oh my gosh. Oh my you know, gosh. I told you last You're time testing I'll, me. <laughs> I'll I'll you know, I'll tell you again, the real lesson from this story is as someone who was born in Philadelphia could tell you, you just don't talk to people from New Jersey. You just don't do that. <laughs> like that's that's still true. Yeah. Don't do it. I learned my lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
but it well, made me reflect on on yeah. my own side of things, you know, which is I guess always my go-to move, you know, is to try and go. If I'm upset about something or accusing someone else, I always have to turn the finger my direction and go, hmm, how you. am I guilty of the thing that I'm angry at them for? You know, That was so. like, you know who would be proud of you? Your friend Suzanne Stabile. Suzanne would oh. be like, you know, that's an eight doing her work right there. Not getting <laughs> on the internet, yelling at people, not like knee deep in the comment section, just going back and forth. That's, mm. I'm, I'm proud of you, Nadia. Thanks. Yeah, I, I just had dinner with her and Joe like three nights ago. <laughs> Right on. Yeah, she's going to be down in Austin at our at our church in a week. Yeah. Oh, she's my favorite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know she likes you, so yeah. I'm I'm a big fan of hers as well. Nadia, this is uh, I feel like this is round two has been a lot of fun. I mean, round I, two was much better. I'm glad I uh, I repented. <laughs> I, I mean, part of me kind of likes the like the caffeinated non yoga <laughs> Nadia. I mean, I feel like there's a a little spicier, a little yeah. spicier. Yeah, it's true, but I don't know how helpful it is for anyone. No, I like. I feel like I'm going to go to the grocery store next time, and I'm going to walk around going, "Yeah, that was good. Yeah, we we made that work. That was good." Yeah, I'm, good. I'm not, so I'm not going to get an email or a call the next morning. Tomorrow? I don't think yeah. so. No, I think we're good. I think we did it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, um, it was fun. I mean, yeah. it's kind of weird that I'm not going to have to bleep anything out. So. Yeah, I know. I mean, I wasn't all like, you know, stoked up and angry, so. <laughs> uh, Nadia, right. let me tell you something. I'm, I appreciate you. I'm glad your voice is out there, and I'm glad Thanks. that you have some affinity for those of us in the Churches of Christ still, because I want you to know there are many of us in the Churches of Christ who have a great deal of affinity for you. Oh, so thank you. My, my one heartbreak is that uh, this book was obviously written as a pastor. Um, it's stories from your church, and like I, like I get people transition in their occupation, in their vocation, and you're like a pastor at large now. Yeah. But like, I, I, there's there's part of me is like, I wish you were like doing this every Sunday at a at yeah. a local church. But yeah. I respect it. No judgment. I get it. Yeah. No. I mean, me too. I mean, I miss that church. Like, it, it makes me cry when I think of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, um, but they're thriving without me, and it. Um, yeah, I just it was time to it was time for them to be them without me, you know. So mm-hmm. I it was it. all good. I mean, the fact that I was able to leave while they still loved me feels like a great victory. <laughs> it's better to leave a month too soon than one month too than a day too late. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the boxer; you quit before you like get Correct. forced out. That's Correct. that's very smart. But I know you're going to be in Austin in uh, for South by in in a few weeks. So yep. while you're down here. Bring a resume, bring a sermon on CD, and, you know, I could put it see through and see. Do, what, huh? see yeah, I'm yeah. just saying, like, you never know. You never don't know. So. I'll be at the New Story Festival um, as well. That's in Austin coming up. So When's that? I can't remember the dates because I don't track my calendar. I only that's ever a, know what I'm doing next. But it's, that's soon, a good plug. it's the spring sometime. It's called the New Story Festival. Yeah. Oh, new, new Story. We'll check it out. Well, All right. Nadia, good work. This All has right. been fun. Thanks, friend. All right. Thank Thanks you. for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>